we're all going to face this. It's not us, the helpers, and them, the people who need to be helped. That sets people up for like, well, I don't want to be part of them. Like, I'll, I'll just be the us, the ones who are strong, who help, you know? So part of what gets us through this is that we all share our stories. We all share stories of the vulnerability that we talk about to model like, yeah, I've hit some really dark places. This is what it looked like for me. This is also how I got through it. This is the resource or this was the person or this was the aha, whatever it is that we, we can model that for each other. Because as, as long as we don't hear those stories, we assume that we're the only ones. And that again drives that loneliness and hopelessness. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals to think big, start small, and learn fast. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this show, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Sally Spencer Thomas. Now, Dr. Sally sees issues of suicide prevention and mental health promotion from a host of perspectives. She's a clinical psychologist, mental health advocate, faculty member and researcher, and suicide loss survivor. She's earned an international reputation as an entrepreneur and innovator in social change. And along the way, she's helped establish many large-scale gap-filling mental health efforts, including Man Therapy and the National Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention. I'm grateful to call her a fellow nobody and excited to see the companies we're working on together come to life in the studio in 2022, specifically around employee crisis management. Now, it's a $70 billion loss annually from employee mental health crises because they're not handled correctly. And when your employees face personal challenges, what do you do? And most HR departments and managers aren't trained to handle an employee's crisis and employees don't know what their rights and benefits are. So it creates tough situations, bad feelings, broken relationships, and it's bad for everybody involved. So our goal is to save this company-employee relationship and ensure both sides are met. Companies need to attract great people. Employees need their support they deserve uh, when they're vulnerable, and we want to build that bridge. And Sally is helping to drive that. So before we hear more about that, let's start off with her own story and how she got started. So I get this degree in psychology because I loved learning. I loved going to school and learning, learning, learning. And then I got out into the world and I went, oh no, I've got $70,000 in graduate school debt and I actually don't like being a psychologist. Bummer for me. <laughs> you know. And so I stumbled around some more, started doing leadership development, which I actually liked at the university level. Helping young people find who they are in the world was a good use of my psychology degree. And that felt like a pretty good fit. And then my brother died by suicide. So 2004, kind of in the middle of all of that, my only sibling, my younger brother, 34-year-old father of two, killed himself. And many of us have these moments in our life where we had life before, and then we have life afterward. And that was absolutely the turning point event in my life. And for like a long time, I just was so traumatized in such deep grief. You know, we started a nonprofit in his name. I remember that's probably one of those turning points where I was, I was sitting in a, a suicide loss survivor support group, you know, listening to all these stories of all these other parents and siblings who had lost their loved ones. And I was thinking, wow, somebody really needs to do something about that. And yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, it's probably, probably, probably I can me. contribute. <laughs> I can probably <laughs> contribute to this in some way. Then once I figured it out, like, I'm like, that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing. It's been a bumpy ride, but there's been a lot of silver linings, a lot of joy and meaning making that's really contributed. But yeah, that was the thing. 
this is what's always great about people's personal sort of inflection points, whatever brings them on is always fascinating. I think so many people have experienced such uh, difficult experiences you're describing, right? And very rarely would you meet someone now that hasn't either not in their immediate family, but maybe one or two degrees of separation experience something really difficult like this and how to respond, right? My own personal situation, I've seen it in my family and it's so hard to understand like what's contributing it. Did I contribute to it? What, what could we have done differently? There's so much remorse that often goes unresolved because you can't ask the person. You can only feel these things. So what's helped you, you know, on your personal journey then you've mentioned it was, you know, maybe the aha moment was we were sitting in that session where someone talked about the challenges in the space or like that was a prompt for you to think I can make a difference here or this is a calling that that I want to be a part of. So how did you start to take some of those first steps then from what you had probably learned in in your education aspects of this as a trained psychologist doing leadership coaching and then it's quite a change, I imagine, then to start looking at this very specific discipline and area of it. Again, I went to graduate in the early 90s. So the field has evolved quite a bit since then. But still, in a lot of spaces, the fear around suicide is just immobilizing. And even you would expect mental health professionals to maybe not get that so strongly. But I think we got, get it even worse. Fear, like if you mess this up, you're going to lose your license. You're probably going to get sued. And then you got to live the rest of your life knowing that, you know, someone died on your watch. I mean, like those are the kinds of implicit messages we got all the time throughout graduate school. So when you're in a role where you're trying to help someone and you are scared to death, guess what? You move into self-protection mode, right? I got to protect myself. I got to protect this license. And people end up just getting hot potatoed rather than really helped. So one of the things that was very clear to me after his death was how much fear got in the way of his own fear of how he was going to be rejected or judged and the whole helping systems fear of just hot potatoing him from one professional to another professional to another professional. And that that's at some point we've got to figure out how to come together and hold a space of compassion and put the fears just off to the side a little bit. I don't know that we're ever going to get rid of them because we're talking about life and death. But if we can put them off to the side far enough that we can be truly open to understanding other people's experiences, I think that's a really important first step. So that was kind of the first aha moment. It's like, oh my gosh, the mental health system is totally contributing to this problem. And we're the ones who are supposed to be like, woohoo, we got you to the mental health provider and we are falling way short. There's a lot of really smart people working on all of that now to shift our system from a fear-based system to this much higher skilled, compassionate, tackle it head-on type of approach. But we're, we're not quite there yet. At least we're not quite there in the United States. I think some other countries are doing a slightly better job, but we've got a long way to go. So that was kind of the first aha thing that I had to unlearn. It's so interesting that you bring up this concept of fear, right? Because it's actually something I've been writing about a lot recently and spending a lot of time with people in different sort of disciplines. Had Anna Weinberg on the show a while ago. She's an organizational psychologist. She works with teams like trying to remove fear or or what people talk about anxiety about taking action in the face Mm -hmm. of uncertainty. Mm -hmm. But in many ways, like product innovation, you're working in the unknown, you're trying things that are unknown. And when people feel like how they'll be treated if they make mistakes, if there's errors of omission or commission, or what's the impact of that? And when we get into this fear-based decision-making, to your point, you're highlighting, right? Like people don't sometimes take the bolder steps, the more innovative steps that could lead to a breakthrough. 
in scenarios, thing, hot potatoes is using a fun example to use that as an analogy, right? Like the problem just gets keep being passed around and it's never tackled head on. And we also had another great person on the show, Rich uh, Sheridan, who has created this really fantastic company culture in a company. He wrote this great book called Joy.Inc. And it was all about creating joy at work. It's one of their the hallmarks of this Menlo innovations that they created. And he would often say, as the CEO and founder of the company, his number one job was to suck fear out of the room, mm. is to remove fear so people can take steps that are uncertain, that might uh, be bold, might be unknown, but that's often where some of the breakthroughs can happen. So again, it's always fascinating to hear in so many of these different domains, whether it's product innovation or the area of focus that you have put a lot of your energy into and are again, trying to bring some of these things to life. It's always fascinating to hear how fear actually holds us back from our potential to push through these difficult, high risk, as you say, life or death scenarios in your instance here. But we're going to have to do some of these things, I'm imagining, to sort of get to the next stage or beyond the the hot potato analogies you're describing. Yeah, 100%. So like the whole reluctance to innovate thing was something we also faced. So when we looked at the data and we found most people who die by suicide are working aged men, they have yeah. one attempt and it's fatal, and they've never reached out to any kind of mental health support. That's the majority. That's like the, the prototype, if you will. Yeah. So it doesn't even matter in that scenario whether or not our mental health system's awesome. They're not reaching out, right? And so yeah. we had to innovate in that space. And much longer story than I can tell today, but one of the things that the men told us would be helpful is A, if they got connected to a peer, and B, if we made it funny, they might pay attention. And oh my gosh, my world, the mental health world, freaked out. You can't make something funny that's so serious like suicide. I'm like, you know what? They told us that that's what would cut the clutter and they would pay attention to. How about we actually listen to people? But we almost talked ourselves out of an innovation and just went back to doing the, the things we've always done that never worked, you know, instead of trying something new. So the fear piece is a big one. And then you were also talking about corporate culture and fear and this whole wave currently about understanding psychological safety in the context of workplace often revolves mostly around risk-taking and discussing, learning from mistakes, learning from error as a community and so forth. But I think that whole conversation equally applies to mental health and suicide prevention, because if people don't feel psychologically safe to say, hey, I'm not doing so good over here, like it's my turn to, uh, right to, to stumble yeah, around, yeah. I'm going to need everybody else to have my back while I'm figuring this out. If people don't feel safe to do that, then people just white knuckle, it goes underground and we can't get in front of it. Yeah, it's such a great call out, right? Because I think what I've personally experienced in my own career, when, I, when you're under stress, that sometimes you're almost conditioned yourself to say, to white knuckle this. Another great sort of example, I'm just going to keep pushing through. Don't speak up about it. This is just a, a time. It will pass or, oh no, I, it's responsibility. I have to deliver this for the team. Otherwise, I've let them down. And, and I even notice in myself, whether it's just your energy level, your performance level, it's very easy to start getting in this cycle that you're slowly taking like a little bit percentage point every week and you're going down more and more and more and more and more. And then suddenly, you know, you look you back, if you even do look back 
And that's how I think you can get to these really tough places to get out of again. It becomes a vicious cycle, I think. And if I've seen it in colleagues, I've seen it myself, I've seen it in teams, whether it's working too long, whether it's making sacrifices for family, friends, or not building community around yourself. And you get to these difficult places because you're not speaking up about it, because you don't want to be a burden, because you're not meant to say that. Or the way we work in this company is people get stuff done. Or especially, we've probably seen a huge amount of this it amplified through um, the last number of months and years through the pandemic, right? Because people Mm. were transitioning to working at home. I do a lot of work with Slack's exec team and they do fabulous research. You know, the people most impacted by the whole pandemic shift at work has been working mothers because they are managing home, they are managing jobs, they are managing kids. And it's a huge pressure put on them and that's and and other communities as well who've been who really felt this but still people aren't really talking a lot about it what we're hearing now a little bit is this sort of great resignation and people sort of leaving their jobs why because they weren't able to talk about it because the company didn't face that problem head on that they like these are all i guess symptoms for me of Mm -hmm. Sort of the deeper problem I think you're trying to allude to, whether it's in, as you say, work in your specific domain around suicide, but what I just keep seeing and just people's general mental health and well-being about what we tell ourselves we're doing or what we don't say, but what's really happening is that's fascinating to me about how we break down some more of those barriers, you know, because work is not going away. So we we need to start building good companies and approaches and normalizing these behaviors, I think is is really fascinating. Yeah, well, the pandemic forced our hand, right? We had had no choices. We had to start doing things differently. You know, it's been a very stressful journey for many of us, but it's also shaken us up in such ways that we would have never gotten to had we not been forced to. And a lot of people had fears of escalating suicide rates after this. And actually, the suicide rates have gone down. And for those of us in the work, we always say, like, follow the data, like, don't make any assumptions, especially during a large scale disaster, because human beings are surprising. <laughs> it's not that everybody was, woohoo, we're having a great time. It's that our lives shifted so drastically. And a lot of times when we face large scale disaster, we pull together as communities and that protects us. In this particular large scale disaster, people left jobs that were toxic, which can be one of those stressors that, are, you know, really can drive you to despair. People found, hobbies and things that were fulfilling. People faced spiritual questions that they hadn't faced before. And yeah, work from home, hard. The pandemic anxiety for many of us, hard. But there were other things that shifted pretty drastically for us that buffered us, called out other questions in our lives, made us realize life is short, you know, all kinds of other things that maybe protected us in some way. But I think the other point that you brought out about burnout is a real deal. And when people are bone tired, not just, boy, I had a long day. No, they're bone tired, cannot get the energy going no matter how much they're resting. They're cynical, negative, nothing's going to work. Everything's seen through a negative frame. And then they start to lose this hope that whatever they do is going to result in some kind of positive outcome. Like it just doesn't matter. You know, we call that that loss of self-efficacy. Whatever I do, it just doesn't matter. When people get into that level of burnout, that is hard to turn around because that's pretty deflated at that point in time. You've had to gone through a long period of letting your battery drain when you get to that piece. So, you know, addressing burnout proactively is, I think, another thing that the workplaces are needing to relearn because you can't just keep pushing people and pushing people to do more with less, more with less, more with less 
to the point where they also feel disconnected to the mission, disconnected to their other coworkers. They feel like they're this cog in a wheel of something, somebody else's benefit. We can't do that to people anymore. They're just not going to tolerate it, especially the young talent. They're just not going to stick around. So yeah. companies really want to keep going. They've got to figure out other ways to treat people. I love it. So you also mentioned another point that I, you know, I love digging into on this show is this sort of debunking the conventional wisdom, even better when you can debunk it with real data, right? So share with us some of the things that you're actually like, what is the real data saying about how people are dealing and coping with, with suicide and its prevention? Like, what are some of the things that we need to unlearn? Maybe we've been told was previously the way, but actually what you're learning through your work is at odds with that or is actually untrue even. Yeah. So historically, the narrative around suicide prevention in the United States in particular, but largely Western countries, again, historically has been it's a medicalized issue. And therefore, the only people who can help are the medical professionals, the mental health professionals, and they need treatment, whether that's psychotherapy or Medicaid. That's the only road we got. That is the only yeah. road. And if you don't go, we're going to make you go. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, we're going to lock yeah. you up. We're going to force you to go. We're going to make you get that treatment. Well, there's yeah. something wrong with that whole picture, right? Yeah, no, um, that doesn't even just listen to it. Like it's like re one road and no option doesn't. Oh really my gosh. Much. And so what we learned from that is that when we force hospitalization, suicide rates go up. They don't go down. It's traumatic for most people. The suicide rates two weeks to one month after forced hospitalization are terrible. When you just think about that experience of being stripped of your civil rights and being under a guard, basically watching yeah. you, I mean, there, there's not a lot of healing happening in that moment. Now, I understand we can't get people lives worth living if they're dead, but that is not working. And so we need to broaden the scope from it's a medicalized issue and the only helpers are mental health professionals because... We're never going to get in front of this. The mental health professionals are not boots on the ground noticing people going through hard times. They're behind yeah. closed doors, even the best ones. So then we got to look at it more from a public health frame. And there can be change agents in our faith communities, in our schools, in our workplaces that do just as well, if not better than the mental health professionals in terms of changing people's worlds around, because it's not just about mental health. Mental health doesn't happen in a vacuum. Mental health happens in a context where people are living and breathing and interacting with other people and making meaning in their lives that happens in our schools, in our workplaces, and you know how we forge relationships and how we see a future for ourselves. Like That doesn't happen in the therapist's office only. It happens mostly in other places. And then even more broadly, so then when we get to public health, other people can start to play a role, bosses, managers, yeah. Healthcare yeah, providers, teachers. This word right. you're saying, yeah. Uh, yeah. And then when we broaden it just one more degree, and look at this as a social justice issue that a lot of people's hardships are coming about because they've been treated really poorly, whether that's been trauma they've experienced or, or bias or discrimination or some other injustice. Well, now everybody can play a role. And when we look at, I was sharing this study that just really wowed me when it first came out, people who were interviewed after their suicide attempt, long in-depth interviews, and then researchers did qualitative analysis on, on what they said. They found two patterns on what made a difference for people in turning things around, you know, from suicidal despair to coming back into living. And the two themes were, I found a peer, all right? So I found someone who was kind of like me. They went through a similar hardship 
and they were a little bit farther down the path than me. And they gave me hope. They gave me validation. They walked with me. They understood me. Okay. I found a peer. And number two, I made meaning out of what I went through. I came to understand that I went through this really dark thing to grow, to help other people, to help advocate for change. Like I couldn't have done that if I didn't understand this pain in this way. So somehow I made meaning out of my experience so that things would be better in the world or for me or in my relationships. And that can happen again in all kinds of contexts. It can happen in spiritual communities. It can happen through learning. You get these kinds of aha moments in all kinds of other places, which we must address because our mental health system is so backed up right now that if that's our only answer, we're in a tough spot. Again, as you're sharing that, like that, what you're describing as well, some of these maybe emotions that I'm, I'm hearing as well of this sense of a peer or a sense of meaning, right? Like that is in so many aspects of our life. Maybe, you know, in your own work and you find someone who's a great peer that you work with and you really inspire you. And then mm-hmm. suddenly you're working on an, a new initiative that's going to have a great impact in your world. And and you feel like you're bringing all your best capabilities to that to have a positive impact on something. People dream about that from a, a career perspective or a friends. Like I think some of the best experience I've had in my life is like traveling around with one of my best friends, backpacking all over the world together because we were growing as people by going to different countries, learning different languages. Like these are like special, the most special feelings and moments I've ever had in my life as a person as I've grown, right? And so when you're describing these behaviors and these situations that folks are in, when you've had adversity, when you've had difficult situations, no one can do anything on their own. Having someone there that you can be a pair with, who can help you, who can recognize things in you that they see in themselves, I think is a huge part of any sort of experience you go through in life. But the accelerator always then is, if I can take what I've been through and pour it into something that could help other people or could have a positive effect in the world, those two aspects, as you're describing, I think people are constantly seeking that in all parts of their lives. So it's great to hear that there's recognition in this space as well, that that could be a key part in helping people get the breakthroughs they're looking for and to rebuild, to relearn, to go forward, whatever it is to help them get back on a path of that's healthy for them in the long term is really fascinating to hear. Yeah, and I think the other key piece of that is that the peer relationship is reciprocal. So yeah. the idea of we all take turns in having hard times and feeling resilient. It's my turn now. I need you. You know, when it's your turn, I'll be there. You know, that kind of thing. Like this is what we do for each other rather than having someone always identified as the struggling one, right? We just take turns in this space. And some of us have long, deep ones, and some of us have like really spiky ones and whatever. We're all going to face this. It's not us, the helpers, and them, the people who need to be helped. That sets people up for like, well, I don't want to be part of them. Like, I'll, I'll just be the us, the ones who are strong, who help, you know? So part of what gets us through this is that we all share our stories. We all share stories of the vulnerability that we talk about to model like, yeah, I've hit some really dark places. This is what it looked like for me. This is also how I got through it. This is the resource or this was the person or this was the aha, whatever it is that we, we can model that for each other. Because as, as long as we don't hear those stories, we assume that we're the only ones. And that again, drives that loneliness and hopelessness. 
Right. Well, and the other thing I keep thinking of is fear, right? Because the best thing about when people show up and are vulnerable and share their own stories of where they've made mistakes or thing went wrong, again, it makes other people feel like, oh, like it, it removes fear because they're not painting this picture of perfection of the everything worked perfectly for me. I've never had a mistake. I, all of these sort of misnomers, I think, that just add more weight onto people when they're in difficult situations. Actually, it releases pressure by saying, yeah, I've been there. Yeah, yes. I, I remember the first time I tried to do that thing for the first time, I slipped and fell flat in my face. You know, it was a disaster. But hey, look, here I am now. And this is what I learned from it. Those are very important moments, I think, to help people, as you say, reciprocate as they're sort of going through that process. It's an oldie book, Giddy, but the book From Good to Great, where they yeah. did research on those level five leaders, like what separated, like you're a decent leader from this leader who took from zero to 100 and then sustained it for a really long time. And one of the differentiators was humility. You know, those were leaders were far more likely to say, I don't have this all figured out. I'm going to make mistakes and I've had struggles and I need all of you because we're going to figure this out together. And it was that humility that I'm not perfect. I don't know everything that built the trust, that built that psychological safety and that trust within those organizations that we could all take up the turn of that. Yeah. And they're the people everybody wants to work with now. Nobody wants to work with the, you know, the archetypes, the know-it-alls. The, I think that character hopefully will slowly start to disappear. But it's again, it's a greater sort of misnomer. So tell me more then now about what are some of the areas that are really lighting up your work? And we've got to know each other through Nobody Studios and yeah. like our crazy ambition to do 100 companies over the next right. five years. And <laughs> health and wellness is such a huge pillar of that, I'd describe it, right? And some of the work that you've been doing, super fascinating, and then trying to turn that into businesses that can actually help people. So tell us a little bit about what has been your current focus at the moment and the areas that are really of interest to you. Yeah. So again, weird paths your journey takes you, right? Yeah, here we are. Yeah, yeah. I'm a girly do-gooder. And like 90% of my day, I'm working in male-dominated industries, construction, transportation, manufacturing, because the male-dominated industries have been hit hardest by suicide because 80% of people who die by suicide are male. So anyway, I'm in these spaces that for the most part have never thought about, touched, talked about, whatever, mental health, let alone suicide. And they're ready because it's been brought to light in a way that it's never been brought to light before. Like there's stuff they can do to save people's lives. And, you know, just like any other public health issue, if we're all in it together and we keep figuring out what's working and then we do more of that, we're going to chip away at this. So what that ends up looking like for a lot of places is a shift in culture, a shift in culture from you show up, you work hard, you reach the goals, you do what you're told, you jump through the hoops, you get rewarded, you stay here 40 years. Like that model <laughs> is gone. It's gone. To you go uh, faster, Sally. <laughs> <laughs> to you know, how do we create a culture in a company where people are a excited to serve, they believe in the mission, they believe more importantly, sometimes in the people in their teams. And that they have each other's back when people go through hard times. And it absolutely warms my heart every day to see these very tough, most of my work is in construction, very tough people, super tough. They handle unbelievable amounts of stress. They do work that is so completely daunting all the time, working really hard on their empathy skills because they get it. They understand like, I've got to sort this out. You know, if I'm going to be able to 
recruit and retain talent and so forth. And so the project that we're working on in Nobody Studios has been actually like a dream of mine for a very long time because we need to shift our model on how we meet people when they're going through rough patches in their life. You know, historically, again, based in fear. Oh, ADA claim. Whoa, we don't want to even go near American Disabilities Act. So we're not going to talk about anything. We're just going to send people over the EAP, wish them the best. And if they can't cut it, we're going to need to let them go. And that's all, again, based out of fear, fear of getting sued for discriminating against some kind of medical condition like depression or anxiety. You know, these came from a place good-hearted to protect people's rights, but they end up in reality being tools to cut people out. Yeah, manage people out. Absolutely. Exactly. That's exactly Absolutely. right. So, so what we're working on Nobody Studios is, and hopefully, I know we're working at speed here, hopefully soon, is an interactive tool for managers and the employee who's going through a hard time to collaborate and negotiate together. Here's what I need. Here's what I need. Here's the stuff we've got in the middle, accommodations, resources, whatever. Let's try things out. Let's see how it goes. Like it's more of a collaborative, negotiated process where there's no assumptions, really. Like we're not going to assume that mental health treatment is the thing that's going to fix you. And we've got one track to send you. You know, maybe what you need is help with childcare. And that's going to free up enough space in your emotional life that you can deal with this other stuff. You know, we can't always make assumptions that it's only going to be this medicalized treatment model that's going to be the fixer. So how do we negotiate this? How do we make it about a partnership much more than it is so today and take the fear out of the equation with negotiation tools, a lot more resources in the buffet, a lot more kind of coming alongside people and deeply listening in that space rather than falling into the prescription of like a performance improvement plan or very prescribed accommodation protocol, but really like relearning how to be human with each other and treating people how we would want to be treated if we were the ones going through that hard time. And so I'm super excited. I'm super excited about this. And then you give an idea to Mark and like within 30 seconds, he's taken that idea and gone, So then we can start to have metrics to be able to grade companies basically on how well they're doing this kind of thing, how well they're developing psychological safety and have like the glass door mechanism where it's now that in the marketplace. Like if you want to be in a workplace that treats their employees with dignity, respect, collaboration, partnership, here's what the employees are saying. Here's what they're doing around psychological safety. This is a great place to work, not only for the benefits and the opportunities, but because people treat each other so well. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm just so excited. And again, a stellar team of yourself working with Sachel Thacker, mm-hmm. you know, deep history. You know, she was obviously a, a litigation attorney and employment law and agriculture officer for nobody. And, you know, it's just fabulous to see how you're taking a sort of multidiscipline team tackling these problems in workplaces that you have all spent a huge amount of your time to respond with something better. And I think that's one of the things I'm always feel like privileged to see it happen on a daily basis in the studio, but just folks really dialing into areas they see problems and passionate about and and blowing them up in a new different way. It's kind of fun. So for yourself, now this is always fun to ask one from you then, like coming from the maybe more of a clinic type of mindset to building digital products. What's been one of the interesting sort of moments for you on your own journey as you start to explore building Mm. software products to help in this space? 
Yeah, I still don't know that I'm on the software side. I'm probably still more on the conceptual side, but I do, I'm an entrepreneur. So that's part why this work excites me. I'm like, oh, let's go boldly where no one has gone before and figure yeah. something out. That's going to be really cool. And I think, you know, the thing that I had to unlearn and I'm probably still working on unlearning is that I am not. I am not the products I create. I am not the achievements that I obtain. I am not that. I am much broader than that because a, a lot of entrepreneurs get stuck in that space. A lot of people who are achievement oriented get stuck in that space that that happiness is going to come after I finish the thing. And then, <laughs> no, it never comes. Okay. Well, then it must be that next thing that I get. That's when the happiness is coming. And then, also, those of us who have kind of that mindset that we are what we achieve, we are the products we create, we are the things that we do, when it doesn't work out, and a lot of times it doesn't work out, but when it doesn't work out and the fall seems so great, whoa, are we vulnerable? Because we have made ourselves this single source identity that I am the doctor, I am the lawyer, I am this achievement person, and then woo, life throws us a huge curveball. And the only time, knock on wood, that I've had major depression was when this little nonprofit that I had, I could see was not going to make this goal. Like somebody invested a bunch of money in me and I had to come up with matching capital. And, yeah, and yeah, I could yeah. see there was no way, no yeah. way on the planet I was going to make it. And here I am. I'm probably a good, I don't know, seven or eight years in the work of suicide prevention and all this stuff. And I know all these things, right? I know these things. Yeah, here, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but my brain is telling me, here's how we're going to solve this problem. We're going to work harder. We're just going to work harder. And I know this is like such a slippery slope for entrepreneurs because both just, well, just we, we are hard workers. So we're just going to work harder. And I went into such a dark place, you know, because nothing I did was working because I was really compromised in my mental health. So the yeah. work I was doing wasn't awesome. And I was doing it 24 seven. And it was this aha moment when I'm not sleeping, I'm not eating, I'm feeling like a worthless failure that my peers came alongside me. And it, this chokes me up every time they say, Sally, we love you no matter what. You could fail at this whole damn thing and we don't care. We love you. Yeah. I'm like, you do? <laughs> yes, of course you do. And then, you know, and then as soon as I accepted that, I like, you know, things started to perk up again, you know, but it yeah. was like, I have to learn this over and over again that I am not the achievement. I am not the thing I create that we are the millions of decisions we make every day with the people around us. And, and that's it. <laughs> yeah. And so special to hear you say that. Thank you so much. You know, and the word I heard you say that resonated with me so much is identity. And when we can, when we get into that, tying our identity to it is very, very hard, right? Like I've been in that situation myself, started a few companies. One company, I quit my job where I was moved from actually the UK to here in, in America, started up the company with someone I thought was a fantastic person. And six weeks in, I knew the company was going to fail, you know, and it was like gut wrenching. And I was right. like, I burnt the boats. I was like, this is this was the ticket. This was the rocket ship. It was all going to be perfect. Everything was I could see it all ahead of me. And then six weeks there I was like heartbroken. And no matter as you even do to yourself, no matter how hard you work, no matter how many hours you stay up, no matter how many emails you send, whatever it is, you know, it's it. And when you're so tied to your identity, that was a huge moment for me. And it took me a long, long time to get past that, you know, and it's funny, like the best moment for me was one of my uncles, who's another entrepreneur to me. And he sent me this great email because I think maybe he sensed I was in a situation. Who knows? You know, and I, and I remember him saying to me, like, just don't get one shot. There's actually many. And really, 
what it's about is just dusting yourself down and you know gather the lessons that you've learned from the situation and play them forward to the next spin and sadly he's not with me now he passed away a number of years ago but that was just like that was my little moment as you described where someone was kind enough to sort of reciprocate and give me some advice that was really powerful you know so yeah i think it's it's a great thing for us all to remember as we go along and yeah, entrepreneurialism, it's a lifestyle, right? It's uh, it, We choose it. <laughs> it's a roller coaster ride. Most days exhilarating and impactful and amazing. And then, oh boy, here we go again. <laughs> but now that I've been through it a couple of times, I'm like, oh, here we go again. I know what to do. It's got to suck for a little while, but then we'll be fine. <laughs> Love it. Well, look, um, Sally, it's been absolutely fabulous to have you on the show. Thank you for sharing, educating us on this space and you know, I'm absolutely excited to see all the amazing things we're going to create in the studio. You, this first company you're describing, I'm sure there's like 20, 40, 50, who knows how many more that we'll, we'll get to work on <laughs> right. in the years ahead. But again, thank you very much for your time today and sharing with us. Thank you, Barry. It's been awesome being here and you're doing great work in this space too.